One of my favorite character traits, maybe, maybe even one of my favorite words, is the word grit. I think it embodies so many things that I find valuable, that I relate to, that I I try and embody, and I look to others who have this sort of resilience and toughness and perseverance and a, a passion for whatever it is that they endeavor toward. And I like this word so much that um, I actually, when my grandmother passed, I used this as the centerpiece for, used the word grit as the centerpiece for my my um, my speech. And you know, my grandma embodied, I do think it is a is a characteristic that is so admirable and rarely understood, rarely defined until Angela Duckworth came along. If you're not familiar with her or if you love her work, this podcast is going to rock your world. Um, she is a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, the founder and CEO of Character Lab, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to advance scientific insights that help kids thrive. She's a MacArthur genius. If you know what that is, that's insane. Uh, she Her TED Talk has been viewed more than 20 million times. She's the co-host of No Stupid Questions podcast and what I know her best as, and likely you as well, uh, she is the best-selling author, a book that sold, I think, more than 10 million copies, hundreds of weeks at the New York Times list, the book Grit. She wrote it, and it is amazing. Um, and what we're going to talk about today, uh, passion, perseverance, how those are key components of grit, what it means to pursue those things as um, as a prime mode of being. And, and she links grit as the defining characteristic. I may be putting some words in her mouth here, but I think I'm speaking accurately as uh, the defining characteristic that unites world-class performers on all sorts of stages. And she's, you know, analyzed um, uh, cadets at uh, military academies and researchers and gamers and like everything under the sun and this concept of grit, resilience, the willingness to keep going and to relentlessly pursue practice. Um, it's such an eye-opening episode. I loved our conversation. Um, you're definitely going to buy the book. <laughs> Be careful if you listen to this, you're going to buy the book. Um, and I know you'll get so much out of it. This is for creators and entrepreneurs who want to not just be great and be world-class, but also we do talk about how to uncover what it is that you're interested in. She's done an immense amount of research around it. Again, she is a research psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so this stuff is backed by science. It's not just hand wavy. The things that can help you identify your area of interest and passion and focus, and then what specifically do do to apply yourself on that discipline, either on one of three tracks, the track of world-class performer, of arrested development, which is you might stall or plateau or not actually achieve your dreams. And then the, the dropout curve, which is when you give up. And it's such a fun conversation. I got so much out of it. Uh, and in the, and we just recorded it just a second ago. We did so live and I, the comments were just lit up people taking pages of notes. So I'm going to shush up and get out of the way so that you can enjoy my conversation with the one and only Angela Duckworth before we do just a super quick word from our sponsor and then back to the show. Hey, oh, hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, 
I am the founder of that company. But I got to be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, frankly, nothing even comes close, and it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So, of course, I'm biased, but I, I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close and you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts okay that's it that's my soapbox that is the commercial and we'll hope to see you over creative life now let's get back to the show thank you so much i'm so excited for this conversation thanks for being here today uh this idea of grit, as I opened with uh, in your intro, is such a powerful concept in human performance. I believe I've listened to at least 100 videos of you talking about it. Um, I wanted to start off uh, for context for those who may be new to your work or uh, not sure how you stumbled into the concept of grit. If you could tell us that story, I believe it evolved from you being a high school math teacher. Yeah, uh, before I was a high school math teacher, I was just a kid and my dad was so obsessed with achievement that I think he probably endowed in me a lifelong interest in, you know, who becomes really excellent at, at what they do. And so in a way, it's been a lifelong quest. And um, I was a high school math teacher for several years, and I found myself pretty frustrated, um, first with the kids, but then, of course, with <laughs> myself, right? First, I was like, why aren't you learning what I'm teaching? And then I realized um, oh, I should me. be frustrated. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, with the teacher, right? So uh, so I thought, you know, why why can't I motivate them to their potential? And I, I could see what they could do, but I couldn't get them there. And I became a psychological scientist to, to unpack a little bit, you know, when somebody tries hard, why do they try hard? When they give up, why do they give up? Grit, I, um, I say, is, uh, you know, the common denominator of high achievers, of those who are really excellent at what they do. And it's different from talent. So uh, if talent is things coming easily to you and learning quickly, Grit is really more about stamina, and uh, I think it has two parts. It has perseverance, which is kind of the obvious part of grit, you know, being resilient, hard worker, practicing, taking feedback, but also I think it's passion, loving what you do. How I'm fascinated by the intersection of those two things, and I, I too believe, and we at Creative Live believe that that's the only way that you truly can unpack your dreams is by doing something that you care deeply about. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've heard you talk expressly about this, um, about identifying, correctly identifying these areas. Is that an area of study for you? Because I think a lot of people say, oh, I like everything. I like everything from Legos to video games. And I like, you know, football and golf. And how do I know what it is that I want? If I'm going to um, be gritty and persevere and have passion around it. How do I select these things? It's not, I think there's always a de facto, or most of the conversations I've heard you in, there's a de facto approach that we know what areas we're passionate about. And I'm wondering if that was an area of a study or interest for you, because there's so many people listening right now. We're getting from, I see South Africa, I see Australia, these are the usuals, Canada, Mexico, New York, Tacoma, Washington. That's very different than. Mexico, we're very focused. We got people from all over the world. That's the short end of the stick there that are saying, 
help me understand this point. I want to know what I'm passionate about and I haven't been given any tools to discover it. Just school and just my parents tell me to be good and and you know but good at what right exactly help us and you know it was a revelation to me uh especially actually after the book came out but um to some extent before because i already had data on this most people consider themselves higher in perseverance than in passion and it's it's a little um non-intuitive because you would think that like working hard and being resilient like that's the hard part of grit the passion part sounds like it should be automatic like how could you not know what you're interested in but in fact i think a lot of people don't know what they're interested in and and maybe it's more than that i think it's that they haven't developed an interest you know we use this word discover when we think about interest like maybe you can discover an interest in cooking or in photography um but i think develop is probably the better verb because it turns out that human interests really take a long time to mature and 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 for example you can't actually be totally in love with something when you're just a total beginner you know as you develop expertise and um um, and background, you you start to see the nuances, you start to see the complexity. And so it can take years really to develop uh, an, an interest to the point where you would call it a passion. And you're exactly right, Chase. I think there needs to be more than, you know, your, your like, your, your eight classes that you take when you're in high school or the four classes that you take when you're in college. I think most people honestly do not develop their passions in those academic contexts. For most of us, it, it's, it's time outside of the classroom. Yeah. Is that something as a former teacher and now a psychologist, is there a prescription that you could offer for how to actually uncover that? Because so much emphasis put on school, you know, I, I like to think that we're sold a a map, a map that says if you behave yourself when you grow up and you go to this school and you get these grades and then you go to this college, then you can have this career and this life. And I've always believed that that's a, a we sell these maps because they're easy to print. Um, but but <laughs> what great. we really what we what we really ought to be selling is a compass, and that's how to attune yourself to what is true north to you. But I still I struggle, and I think so many people. We got some folks from the Philippines, from Norway, from Romania, also want to know like. Great. I'm. You acknowledge that that's not happening in school. Where is it happening? And now as what? a psychologist, yeah. yeah. As a psychologist, do you have a prescription uh, for some folks how to how to endeavor that on their own? So I do have some advice, and I actually taught a class called Grit Lab to undergraduates this last semester, and my Ooh. undergraduates were dying to have a passion. Oh my gosh, they're already hardworking, but they they were so thirsty for a direction. So my advice is to sample, um, and actually that, that term comes from researchers who say that before you specialize, for example, there's a study of NBA basketball players. Um, they're obviously very good at what they do, but it turns out that those who sampled a large number of sports when they were younger are, and maybe this is a surprise to some, um, generally more successful in a lot of metrics, um, you know, injuries, burnout, et cetera, um, more successful than those who specialize super early. And, and that, by the way, goes counter to a lot of parents' intuitions, like, you know, oh my gosh, you're four, like, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in this narrow <laughs> right. track to be, you right. know, whatever a it professional is. professional um, violinist. <laughs> yeah. For, for the rest of your life, you know, don't, don't fall behind. So I think sampling as opposed to premature specialization is the key. Now, I think I can be a little bit more specific than that because it's like, okay, well, how do I sample? Here are two, two ideas. 
One is um, you can actually sample things without actually doing them if you're if you're really not sure and you just want to get an idea. And you can do that through a curiosity conversation. That's the um, idea that Brian Grazer, the uh, oh, Hollywood yeah. producer, uh, used when he was a young man to um, learn more about the world. And it can be a 10-minute conversation with somebody where you um, just really ask them, like, what do you do? What's a day in your life like? What do you love about your job? What do you hate about it? Um, what do you know now that you didn't know? People love, by the way, to have these conversations um, with, with people who are, you know, young and figuring themselves out. So you could sample that way, you know, call up somebody who, you know, is like you, is, you know, doing doing work in, um, you know, creative production. You, they could call me and ask me what it's like to be a professor. That's one way to sample but I think more authentically, you know, once you get your bearings, you have to actually do things. And one of the most common mistakes people make is that they think they can figure this out by like angsting about it, um, writing in their journal, you know, talking. You have to, you know, it's more like food. I mean, if you want to know what the durian fruit tastes like, you know, there's only one way to really do it. And that is to taste the durian fruit. I love it. I, I uh, in my book, I talk about action over intellect. We want to, we want to make the perfect set of decisions from the couch, so that so that no effort is wasted and that we're the most efficient with our time. No mistakes. And, yeah, not messy. And just, <laughs> yeah, and I just don't see that happening. I don't have any experience personally, and I don't see that. And yet, that is, you know, measure twice, cut once. If I had, you know, five hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first four hours sharpening my axe. There's all these sort of like. Um, narratives in our culture, but none that can actually connect you directly with the passion or the feelings, the um, phenomenology, to use a, a philosophical word that I think you and yeah, I, I have love that word, sh by the way. <laughs> shared around. And for those who don't know, that's the experience that you have or the feelings around um, your experience of reality until you do it. And Until so, you do it, you really yeah. can't predict. I mean, uh, there's a guy named Roberto Diaz. He is an Emmy award-winning violist. He is also uh, the head of Curtis Music Academy. I think it's the most competitive music academy in the world. Um, and he grew up to play the viola. Well, his parents played the violin and they were professional musicians, so that's not really a surprise. But here's the real story. When he was growing up, he also played the violin and, you know, he was good and I guess he liked it, um, but he liked soccer more. So he started playing soccer and he thought, I'm going to become a professional soccer player. Well, that ended up not working out. And one day he picked up the viola, which, you know, was just a little bit bigger than a violin. It's like it's like you put a violin on a photocopier, hit zoom and like you get a viola <laughs> and he fell in love. And, and I asked him, like how could you not predict that you would have liked the viola so much um, when you had so much experience with this other thing? And he was like, you know, it's like the human voice. It has a different key. You know, these are things I, of course, didn't understand. I'm, I'm not a musician, but you can't predict. I mean, you cannot predict. You have to try. And sometimes things that are so subtly different from from other things that you don't like end up becoming passions for you. And and um, and I think that's why you do you have to get off the couch, get out in the world. It's very messy. It's also very inefficient. I mean, going and doing an internship for a summer that doesn't work out for you, you know, feels like you're going about things the wrong way, but you're, you're going things about things exactly the right way when you do things like that. Yeah. That, you know, the, part of, as I retrace your work, um, this idea of narrowing your focus, and you talk a lot about a hundred percent focus, a hundred percent effort. And I think you've made clear already in our conversation that that's not for a four-year-old uh, violinist or a four-year-old athlete. Um, that you need to sample a lot. But over time, what you've also said in your work is that 
you have to, a skill is you only get to maintain or grow your proficiency if you use it or practice it. And, and yet for every door that we walk through, we've closed so many others behind us. And I realize, you know, listening to the, the millions of people in our community that, that are creators and entrepreneurs and the thought of choosing something to be great at or to master the language that I like to think about is so traumatic and anxious, create anxiety creating because you're, well, I'm going all in on the viola, but what if it was the violin that I like was like serious to play? FOMO, right? Yeah, like- for sure. And, and it, it, these are in many ways. And, you know, whether you're spending money on college tuition or you're, you know, you're putting yourself out there, taking a risk in front of your friends and peers and teachers and career counselors, and God forbid your mentor that you find, you know, you've done the internship, you got to work with fill in the blank person and you figure out partway through that you're not actually supposed to be doing that thing. And it was really something else and you can't retrace that. So help us understand this, you know, that you talk at length about focus, a hundred percent effort and also deciding what not to do, which is traumatic for a lot of folks. I think it is traumatic. I think you 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 put your finger right on it. This this fear that you're you know getting second best or third best, and and I think one of the uh, one of the like wrong things that we have in our head that I think prevents us from making more progress is that for a long time, for example, in my life, I also thought like, I need to choose the perfect career. And it's all about choosing it. And once you choose it, you know, it's like, no, it should be like in the movies, like, like, great, like, and I'm, I'm, I have a calling and terrific. But I think these things are actually at least as much created than chosen. So for example, you know, there is a possibility that I could have done something different than being a psychologist who studies excellence. Like maybe I could have, you know, continued, I was pre-med. I mean, you know, what would have happened to me if I had become a doctor? Like, I don't know, but it's possible that that could also have been a great life. It's so much is of, of what you do is, um, is creating, you know, a great career, a great vocation, not just choosing. And, you know, I'll give you one other analogy. I'm married and I love my husband, um, but I feel like our marriage is created as much as chosen. And it is, it's, it's work uh, and it's, amazing. Uh, but, but it's not that like the whole, um, the whole job was just to choose the right person and like, great, snap your fingers. Um, if, if we understand that, I think it just relaxes us a little bit to say, look, you know, take a little pressure off. You don't have to choose the singular one thing that, you know, you ought to have been. There's probably a set of things. Um, and in that set, which could be quite wide, um, your your job really is to create something uh, that you love and can be loyal to. That is a huge central tenet for my raison d'etre. Like that, that, you know, creativity is not popsicle sticks and glue and pipe cleaners that were taught about in third grade. And it's not drawing a picture for the class on the chalkboard, but, you know, creativity with a capital C is like everything around us is created, including our lives. And this idea that application of effort, which to me is the segue that I'm trying to get back to your work, like how effort matters and how it's once you've chosen something that the application of effort and you talk about it very clearly, um, I'm hoping you can help unpack that a little bit for the folks that are new to your work and the relationship between, you know, the concept of grit and the the gap between, okay, I'm gritty, but what do you see? What are the characteristics that are predominant in world-class performers on any stage? 
You know, uh, you know much more about Nietzsche than I do, given your background in philosophy. But um, but one thing I very much love about Nietzsche was um, his trying to uh, demystify genius, which, of course, he was considered um, being so precocious and so brilliant. Um, but there are geniuses in philosophy. There are geniuses in music. There are geniuses in, in mathematics. And one of the things I think that is true of geniuses across all those fields is exactly what Nietzsche said, which is that there's the illusion that that everything came easily to these people, that it's like a gift, like, you know, um, songs just come into their head, you know, the photographs come out beautifully. Um, you know, I, I remember when I was writing my book that you mentioned um, so generously, by the way, so thank you. Um, when I was reading, uh, like, at night, I would see these you know, beautiful sentences, these really like perfect paragraphs. And I thought, wow, it must be really easy for everyone else. Um, but for me, I'm just, you know, just slogging through in front of my home computer. Um, you know, it was like Joyce Carol Oates has this quote that um, writing and rewriting is like pushing a peanut across a dirty kitchen floor with your nose. Um, <laughs> and and this is the thing that That's we're brilliant. all doing that. And I think the illusion that Nietzsche wanted to um, sort of work against or, you know, demystify is that that things that are truly excellent come uh, without effort. And, and it's not true. Um, I have worked with really, really great writers and scientists, and you should see their first drafts, like humiliatingly bad, right? Um, and mine are too. So I think it's one of those things where in some ways it's obvious, but I think especially with people who are, you know, on their journey, on their path, and they're not quite, you know, at a level of excellence that they aspire to be, I think they often don't know that. I love hearing that. And that is hopefully reassuring for a lot of folks who, you know, wake up in the morning and look down at your feet on the floor and you're like, wait a minute, I'm not a genius. And, <laughs> yeah. This and, is really you know, hard for me. <laughs> yeah. This is hard processing. And, you know, that's one of the things that I found so reassuring about your work uh, was that this effort, this focus and effort, um, and you've invoked a lot of different people as a lens through which to look at this, but given that we're creators and entrepreneurs and, you know, as largely our audience that we're talking to today, let's um, hear a little bit about Will Smith and you, you've, you've eloquently <gasps> my spoken crush. About oh my his, gosh. I'm his so career Smith. <laughs> and, and, and just the, the effort again, a lot of people think, ah, oh, genius, good at so many things. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the topic of mastery because once you've mastered one thing, I think it's easy to apply it more easier rather to apply it to others because you understand the ingredients, but for the examples that you've used with Will Smith and for everyone who's watching and listening, Will Smith is a, is, is you, I'm talking about you. I'm just using someone that everybody knows as a lens and asking Angela to share. What is it about Will Smith that you uncovered through A, your crush to use your word and B, studying him and conversing with him that helped, uh, helped understand or excavate rather his genius. Yeah, and I'm not just biased toward Will Smith because he's from Philadelphia. Um, that's only part of it. Um, no, he's really great. And by the way, when we say that we admire people um, like Will Smith, um, uh, first of all, he's one of the few people who I think still has kind of can hold his head up high um, in terms of character and and being a really kind, honest person. Um, one by one, our icons seem to fall these days, and, yeah, uh, and Will Smith is, uh, is 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 pretty excellent as a human being. But as an artist. 
Um, there's so much to admire. One of the things I admire so much about him is that he's not done. You know, I mean, there is no resting on laurels. And, and, and that to me is what I think really inspires me about creative people, that there is a drive to create that is never sated. It's not about the money. It's not about the status. I don't even think it's about the praise or admiration. Um, I did have, you know, I don't want to um, sell myself as Will Smith's BFF, um, though I would love to be, but we have conversed. And um, I remember once he was telling me uh, about, you know, how a lot of people ask him, you know, how do I become like you? How do I become, you know, great at what I do? Uh, and he said, well, you know, the thing is, like, what do you really want? Um, and they, of course, say, like, oh, I want to be like you, I want to be excellent. And he was like, what you really want is, you know, when you when the alarm goes off at five in the morning, right? And you say you want this six pack, right? And five in the morning, you turn off the alarm, you roll back into bed, you know, you eventually get up, you have yourself a stack of pancakes. He's like, then you don't want it. Um, and I think one of the things that really impresses me about Will and other people um, like you um, is that there's clarity of purpose. There isn't like all this conflicting, like, well, I sort of want this, but then again, I kind of want these other things that there is, as, as Will Smith um, has said, you know, um, a kind of aerodynamic alignment of goals that things are not, there's not a, a huge amount of of inner conflict. Um, you know, I want to get out of bed and, and exercise and I want a six pack, but then again, I want to sleep late and I want these pancakes too. Um, and it's not to say that you guys aren't complex or you, you're not human, but I do think there's such clarity of, you know, what really matters to you that um, in a way it blurs the line between work and play that you're not feeling all the time that you are obligated to do what you do, but you want to do what you do. And I think that's why people like Will Smith can be not only great at what they do, but they can also be happy. Mm. Let's talk, explore that a little bit more, this interconnection between effort, doing the sort of the right thing, the thing you're designed for, the thing, as you said, you've created for yourself and happiness. Have you uncovered anything in, in your studies on the topic? I um, I was actually trained as a PhD student by Marty Seligman, who's the father of positive psychology. So it was just the normal thing to do when you did a study to include happiness measures. And the most widely used measure in science for happiness is something called the life satisfaction scale. It's got five items. Um, and they're basically of the gist of like, overall, I'm satisfied with my life. Um, and you give it a, a rating. And I find that when you measure happiness and grit, they go hand in hand. Um, so if I could show you a graph, it would just be a diagonal line. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person who's gritty is at the top of the charts of happiness or vice versa, but it means there's a really clear trend. Um, and it also means that these things aren't trade-offs necessarily. I think a lot of, of my life when I was really young, I thought, well, you could either be happy or you could be really great at what you do, but it would be hard to be both. Um, and I think that's not right. I think I think it is possible um, to be great at what you do, and also to feel like happy in your life in a in a holistic sense. Mm. So, this application of a hundred percent effort in order to achieve world class status. You've also framed this a little bit on three different curves. I heard a great talk from the Aspen Institute. I think you were speaking to a group of young people and teenagers. Yeah. Well, assuming we're teenagers, because I think we're all young at heart. And I like to share the idea that it's never too late to start down the path that you were meant to do. And discovering that is a core part of what you should be doing. I kind of think two things, find out what you're supposed to do and then do that thing. So if we think of ourselves just temporarily for 
sake of this conversation as teenagers, that audience that you were talking to at the Aspen Institute, what advice would you give us about these three different trajectories and um, how would you coach us to be on what I think we'd all agree is the preferred trajectory towards world-class status in whatever uh, area of discipline we choose? So in that talk, I was trying to explain to this group of teenagers how human skills, like literally any human skill you think of, how they develop, you know, that could be, you know, how to make a pie or roast a chicken. It could be how to write an essay or an op-ed for, you know, a newspaper. It can be literally anything, even, you know, being a friend um, or something else that you care about. Um, so there are three paths, I think. And when you talk about human skill development, the path that I think everybody wants to be on is the path of continuous improvement. That if you follow the curve, you know, it may be that, you know, certain parts are steeper, certain parts are shallower, but the curve is going up, that you are getting better and better and better at writing, at, at making chickens, at being a friend, et cetera. Um, the other paths are, are less desirable. One is that you plateau. And I think this actually happens to a lot of people. You know, they get to be, you know, a pretty decent teacher or they get to be a pretty de decent engineer uh, or artist. Uh, and there's a point in their development where they just keep doing the same thing that they were doing before. And that is uh, comfortable. Um, it's kind of automatic. But I think the tragedy of that path, the path of arrested development, is that you never see what you could have been. And the third path is uh, quite common, especially um, among young people, and to some extent applies to sampling, which we were talking about, which is, say you start you know, playing the piano or learning how to paint watercolors or, or whatever it is that you begin. And then you know, you're like, eh, not for me. And you, you, you put down um, that skill and you don't come back to it. Well, you know, the brain is use it or lose it. So, you know, you're not going to be able to maintain the same level of proficiency than when you started. So that curve goes down. So you have three choices. And of course, we just said, you know, sampling is important because you, um, you know, you might actually, you know, find that watercolors aren't for you and you should be doing acrylics or, or maybe you should be doing sculpture or maybe you should be a dancer or whatever. But I do think that at some point, the most gratifying way to live is to find something where you are willing to keep learning forever uh, and to be playing the infinite game and, and to never be done, even if the increments in your improvement are so small that only you can see them, right? And I think when you become truly world-class, um, it may be that most of the world can't even tell that you've changed something, that you're that you're growing, um, but you can tell. And I think that is, you know, what a Will Smith represents to me, you know, somebody who is not done growing and developing as a creator. Why do, so let's just, I'm using my very articulate yeah. point, pointer here, this That's uh, good. Our pointer. So there's the declination of skills, there's the world-class curve, and then to me, the curve that is actually most dangerous because we have to turn our back mm. on some things in order to be world-class, right? You can't be world-class at everything at the same time. Right. So take time, you know, file time away a little bit and just let's focus on the curves. To me, the most tragic and yet um, standard path is this path of arrested development. And yeah, my, I agree. My yeah. And my question to you, because so many people right now, I believe it's largely because they haven't chosen the right thing because of social programming and conditioning and expectations. I want to hear why you think so many people get stuck in arrested development. What's the why for this most traditional, you know, again, categorized largely in our culture as safe and as wise and as like, 
average. Why do we get stuck in that common curve that keeps us from greatness and help help us through this? This is yeah. the biggest this is the well, biggest pain point for people listening. It is. And I, I agree with you. It, it does seem to be the standard path, you know, super common, um, although in our view, maybe super tragic. Um, I mean, take driving, right? Like a lot of people like, well, you know, there was a point where you didn't know how to drive and then you crawl up this learning curve. But for a lot of people, I don't think they would say like, yeah, I literally got better at driving last year. Right. And, and so for a lot of parts of your life, you don't need to keep climbing up a learning curve. You know, you don't need to be a better and better and better driver. Uh, for me, by the way, it's jogging. I mean, I am no better jogging, maybe even a little worse than I would, but like, that's okay. That's not my vocation. So I think being at this level of arrested development, which is like just good enough is, is, is fine for a lot of our life. You know, like I don't need to get better at doing laundry. Like I'm, I'm good enough. Um, I might be able to get better, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful thing to have something in your life, you know, something, your vocation in your life where, where, where you're never done, uh, where you're always eager to improve. And I think the reason why, um, some people don't even have one thing uh, where they're doing that is, um, is that it takes effort. So when you study people who are doing this kind of practice that we um, talked about 100% effort, it's also very, very goal-directed. So it's very conscious and deliberate. And then, of course, it requires feedback. Um, and, and sometimes it's a lot of work to even get that feedback. Like you might ask people, like, how can I make this, you know, broadcast more effective for you? What can I do better as an interviewer? Um, whatever it is that you're Are doing, getting... <laughs> well, no, you know, what I would say is that um, uh, I, when I started, you know, having conversations or doing talks, I, I, I used to not ask for feedback. Then one day um, I realized that like in my talk, I talk about like getting feedback. And so actually quite literally, I will email you, Chase, and I'm going to ask you what's one thing I could have done better during this conversation. And, and that is effort. Um, and also, by the way, the ego gets in the way. So there are lots of reasons why we we might not um, choose this path of continuous improvement. It's very effortful. Um, it requires having an ego that says, like, I'm going to not only accept when people tell me that I could have done better, I'm going to ask people to tell me how I could do better. Um, and when you kind of, you know, start to tally up all those things, you're like, oh, well, you know, essentially being on that plateau of arrested development is like basically being on your couch watching Netflix and it's easy and comfortable. Um, and, and, and that's why I think why so many people stay there. Hmm. Easy and comfortable is not the path to greatness. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not how you've chosen to live your life. <laughs> Well, let's let's go into this goal alignment, and I want to acknowledge a, a question coming in from B Fluid Productions from uh, our YouTube live right now, and it's this: you mentioned aerodynamic of goals, aerodynamic alignment. Sorry, aerodynamic alignment of goals. That was a Will Smith line, I think. But what what is that? And when I hear people um, set goals, uh, I hear often very very vague goals like i want to get better at mm. or you know or i want to i want to put um more money in the bank to create security for my family or it's just these are these are vagaries and yeah i'm curious if you could go you know if if not incurring or not incurring not experiencing that curve of arrested development if we want to put ourselves on this highest performing 
um, path towards world-class. Let's just take for granted that we've identified something knowing mm -hmm. as we acknowledged earlier, what a challenge that is culturally, because you're saying no to your career counselor and your parents and your grandma and your spouse and your partner, what's good for you. You make that decision. Now talk about the aerodynamic alignment of goals. So people, uh, all have goals, but the key is, you know, are your goals organized in a hierarchy that is aligned? Now, what do I mean by hierarchy? Imagine a pyramid of goals where there's a top level goal that is your purpose, you know, what you're all about, your identity. And, and it's, it's so core to who you are. It's so um, linked to your personal values that you can imagine going to your deathbed with that purpose. And for me, it's pretty specific. Uh, and it took me, you know, a while to actually figure it out, but is use psychological science to help kids thrive. Uh, and I really think about that as, as, as guiding every decision that I make, including being on, 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 on your show. Um, because I think, well, there's gotta be people out there who, you know, care about and know, know a kid in their life. So, so that's a top level goal, but the hierarchy comes from, well, how are you going to do that? Well, you know, uh, be a scientist, um, also be a communicator. Well, how are you going to be a scientist? Well, here are four projects that I'm working on. Okay. Let's take one of those projects. Like what's the next thing that needs to happen? Well, I have to write an outline. This is a hierarchy of goals from the most abstract and ethereal to the most specific, concrete, and short-term. And I think when people like Will Smith talk about um, aerodynamic goals, or I think, you know, he's way more articulate than I am. So he would have, I think he said harmony is aerodynamic. When your goals are in harmony, there's a kind of, you know, like there's no friction, right? Like you're just going. <clears throat> I think that's the key. And so I think for, for us, practically speaking, when you talk to someone and they have this like vague, goal, it doesn't really, it, it may be that they don't have like a set of concrete specific actions, like sub goals that make that, you know, real. Um, it also may be a little untethered to their highest level goals, right? And I, I think if people could just as an exercise, right, get out a piece of paper and start to just sketch out in pencil, not in pen, right? Just like things that you want and see if you can make a kind of rough hierarchy and see if, if toward the top, you could say like, yeah, these are my enduring personal values. And at the very bottom, you know, this is my concrete to-do list for next week and see if, if these things align. If they don't align, I think that might be why, you know, you're not getting anywhere because you're, you're deeply um, conflicted uh, as opposed to, you know, experiencing the harmony that, um, you know, somebody like Will Smith experiences. Mm, very well articulated. I, I will offer another suggestion to those who are doing that exercise right now, which is look at how you spend your time. If you do a, an analysis on your schedule, this has been a recurring theme for me. I like, I want this. And then you look at how you spend your time and you realize that it's so fragmented and, and not aligned in the Will Smith's sense. Um, same with, with how, what you, what you spend your money on. If you spend right. your money on one thing and your goal is a different thing, I think those two lenses also, also help. But I love the idea of not putting so much pressure on it. Like, Auditing your calendar takes effort. Looking at your bank account and credit card statements take effort. Making a list of things that, that what is your to-do list and what is your goal and seeing if the thing that you're supposed to be doing over the next week, you know, the list of to-dos that we have around the house and the rest of our life, does it align? That's a very, it's, it's, a, it's a good lens. And we've got um, converse or questions coming in from uh, Daniel Tibbetts, I see Marina, Mike, uh, Susie, Redwana, Chris. Um, thanks all for, for, uh, I just want you to know that I'm seeing you and, and I've got a couple of other, uh, topics I want to cover with Angela and then we'll 
get into some of your questions. I just want you to know that I'm seeing them. Um, so Angela, you talk uh, in depth about um, this application of 100% effort. How many people do you feel like in you know your experience as a math teacher, your experience as a psychologist studying West Point, studying 100% effort seems like 100 out of 100 is that's a lot of effort, right? And it's a lot. And if that's required for greatness um, and fulfillment, because I think those two things are important to pair to one another, what you know, what do you see on average? Is that a characteristic that most people have? Is it a characteristic? Is it something that you can develop? Is it something that you uncover? Because the thought of a hundred percent effort on. <laughs> your push-ups or on your abs to use the analogy you used earlier with, or the, the narrative around pancakes, right. like, is it, does it literally require a hundred percent effort? Because that's a big number, a hundred out of 100. Yeah. I, you know, just as you're saying that I, I, I see how intimidating that is. And, um, how about this? The more, the better, uh, and the closer to a hundred percent, uh, the better. And by the way, if if, um, if the people who are listening and watching could just um, think for a moment, if there's ever been in a time in your life where you really were 100% concentrated on what you were doing, like completely absorbed. Um, by the way, I think a lot of people would say this is the flow state, right? 100% voluntary attention. And, you know, some people, um, I remember I asked Brian Grazer that question, actually, speaking of the curiosity conversation guru and Hollywood producer, very creative. Um, and he said, actually, it surprised me. I thought he was going to say something about, you know, being in a film studio, but he said when he's surfing, um, that is a hundred percent concentration. Um, and I think a lot of people experience this when they're rock climbing or, or they're doing something, frankly, where physically, if they're not concentrating a hundred percent, like it's like your body makes you concentrate a hundred percent. I ask you to do that exercise only because you realize that there are times in your life where you've been that, um, undistracted. Um, mm. and, um, for most people, it's a euphoric state to be completely engaged. It's, it's flow, um, right? It's, it's flow. Yeah. And, and man, it's hard to beat flow, right? So, so, uh, so I do think people can learn to experience this more. They can learn to direct their attention more. You know, part of this is trivial, right? If you want to have hundred percent concentration and you find it difficult, well, you have to, for example, and this is appropriate given that we're all in a, a pandemic right now, that you physically be somewhere that there are a few, as few distractions as possible, right? So if you have like a pinging cell phone and, you know, you're monitoring, up and you know you're you're in a place where like people are walking by you know all the time then it is very hard uh, to, to achieve that kind of concentration. So if you want to get closer to 100%, you can start to hack your physical space and say, look, you know, between 10 and 12, uh, everyone out of the kitchen, right? Like I'm writing in my journal, I'm working on this book chapter, like I need to concentrate. That doesn't mean your mind's not going to wander. It doesn't mean you're going to be like, oh, I wonder what's in the refrigerator. But but you're you're kind of setting yourself up for that kind of flow state in a way that, um, you know, you're using your environment to your advantage. I, I love that. that. There's an intention behind it that I think a lot of, uh, if there's a gap between world-class performance and what people think world-class performance is, maybe that's one of the things that's 100% effort. Um, I'm fascinated by the idea that it can be outside of your area that what you're really training is focus and focus the on of course you should spend as much time as you can focusing on the area of mastery but that you're you're pursuing 
but that you're actually conditioning that you can have a hundred percent of focus in other areas. Um, also, I was curious about, um, let's see, there's a thread that I wanted to pull on here and it's, well, let me go, let me, let me go a different direction. I'm going to go down this, um, this focusing or having the ability to do lots of different things and then have that apply the lessons that you apply be relevant to what you're doing. Because if someone likes to, Mm. um, you know, play the violin, but they're really trying to be a world-class neuroscientist, how can those, you know, how do those things relate? And, And I'm curious from a, you know, I know you're, educated in neurobiology, which I think a lot of this is probably has neural pathways at, at play. And just wondering if you can get a little bit more into the science for us about applying hundred percent in everything or in anything that you do is actually contributes to the area of mastery. So, um, uh, just on the point of, you know, how can you be like devoted to something, but you might have other interests and, you know, how do you make that work for you? Like you might be really, for me, let's just, I'll just make it personal. Like I'm, I'm really into psychology. Uh, it's what I do. I will definitely go to my deathbed doing it, but I actually love to cook. Um, and there was a very brief moment in time where I thought I might, you know, try to have a restaurant someday and be a chef. Right. So what do I do with those? Well, you know, by the way, it is possible to just live a very happy life where like you have a vocation and you have a hobby on the side and avocation and they're just, they're not connected at all. Um, but um, it's especially fun when they can be connected. And so how do I connect cooking with my career as a psychological scientist? Well, you know, sometimes really trivial ways. Like I used to bake for the students in my undergraduate class. Uh, that was nice. when we were actually meeting in person. Um, I'd try out like different banana bread recipes. Um, but sometimes it can be even deeper than that. So for example, when I was writing my book, I thought, you know, I'm going to interview chefs um, for no other reason than I love of cooking and chefs and restaurants. So I'm going to study the psychology of excellence through the lens of uh, award-winning James Beard chefs. Now, that is the kind of thing that um, I, I do think, you know, what interest really is, like if we've all experienced interest, but we've all also been bored. And if you do a little bit of introspection about, um, you know, boredom, it's kind of the opposite of the flow state, right? Like your your mind is like a caged animal. You're so bored. You want to, you know, find some way to stimulate yourself. It's like, ah, I don't want to be here right now. Whereas the flow state is like, I am completely voluntarily absorbed. And one of the reasons I love grit is that when you really have a passion, you know, if, if you're a photographer, like you probably see everything and everything that experience, nothing's boring because, you know, everything you're sort of understanding it as a photographer would, you know, as visual imagery and contrast and beauty, a psychologist, Dude, you will never be bored if you're a psychologist because everything has a psychological dimension. The politics in this country have a psychological dimension. When I go to Starbucks, it has a psychological dimension. So I think that one of the great things about being a really gritty, passionate person is that nothing becomes boring because whatever it is, there's always some connection, like some lateral connection or some angle that ties you back to the thing that you so deeply care about. And that makes your life infinitely interesting uh, and really, without exaggeration, like never never boring. And and when you ask me about the neurobiology side of this, um, I'll just say that, you know, I think it's probably premature for me to say things like, oh, this lights up or this. But but it is definitely true that when we have an idea, um, what happens in our brain is that a certain network will light up. Like I'll say a word and, and I'll light it up for you. Apple. Okay. 
in your brain, Apple lit up. And then certain other things that are, you have associated with Apple, like apple pie, or like you bring your teacher an apple, or maybe a painting of an apple, or the Yoko Ono apple with, you know, that she gave to John Lennon. I think that was her first painting that he, uh, you know, met her through. So all those associations just start to like be activated. And so it is a wonderful thing that when you have kind of a through line, so like everything is psychology, but then all these little, you know, associations are kind of, um, you know, pulled in. So you're, you're not as narrow really um, as you, you think. And I'll, I'll just end with this um, on this question, um, which is I really like David Epstein's book range. Um, and in some ways you could think of it as like very contra grit, but I think actually ultimately, and we had a conversation about this. I think we, we agree. There is something about depth, which is very special, but it doesn't mean there's no breath. It means of course you have to sample. And also there is this cross fertilization that happens, which is amazing to have happen when you're a real expert. I love looking at that through the area, through the lens of mastery. I love like, once you've mastered something, the ability to master other things becomes easier because you understand the ingredients and how they intermix. And certainly they're going to be different in a different area of expertise. Uh, I, I think, yeah, that, that depth part is fascinating. It, also through the lens of community. Like if I identify as a photographer or someone listening right now identifies as an entrepreneur and you know, for me, it was action sports. But part of what I learned about action sports was there's this area of psychology, like how did Alex Honnold climb the, you know, the one of the most harrowing routes without it, using... Is it El Capitan? I always yeah, forget El, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, but with no ropes, like there's a psychological aspect. And if, as someone who I didn't, my, my friend Jimmy Chin, who's also been on the show, uh, directed that. But it like what the psychology of the of the, and this is like an adjacent, um, thread that I got really excited and interested about because lo and behold, that happened, that, that is, you know, the ability to focus on something, the ability to be a hundred percent involved in the project, the effort, the commitment, all those things as super broad applications. So I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm with you. I don't see a, a contrast between range and grid. I think there's this, a, a, a through thread. Um, another, this is, maybe a slight departure, but I believe that I believe, and I think this I've, I've shared a lot with this community about nothing happens, um, in a vacuum and everything, even if it's an, in, in, perceived as an individual success, it's a, it's a team and it's a community. And so I, I advocate for building community, but I want to juxtapose, I want to understand how you, uh, feel about it because you talked about when you, I think it was around basketball when you looked at the world, some of the world's top basketball players, they spent, I think, some disproportionate amount of time, the, the highest level of effort where it was when they were alone, despite it being a team sport. So I'm curious about if, if instead of like individual contributor to team, hmm. I think, can you, can you talk about this idea of, you know, a if you believe as I do that a community is an important part of success and cultivating that, but we, the most effort is when we're alone. Yeah. There seems to be a tension or maybe yeah. even a paradox there. So, um, I was probably referring to the research of Anders Ericsson, who actually is the, like the scientist behind this whole idea of deliberate practice and, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of practice to become an expert. Um, Anders Ericsson has found in his research of world-class performers in, 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 
every imaginable domain, right, whether it's mental or physical, um, that there is this, uh, you know, key, which is, you know, complete focus or as close to 100% as you can get. And um, one of the things that he has noticed, and we've studied together because we collaborate, is that this tends to happen when people are alone versus in groups. So let's take musicians, for example. You know, you could practice, like, for example, if you're in a quartet, like, wouldn't you practice with the other three people? Um, and of course, quartets do practice together, but a lot of time when you're learning your piece for the quartet, you practice alone. Well, why would you do that? It just turns out, I think, that in that time when you're alone, you can really concentrate in ways that are, I think, very difficult when there's like other people around who are like talking to you or, you know, want your attention or, you know, we're all social creatures. So when there's another person in the room, I hope we're paying attention to them. Um, and that means we're not necessarily paying attention uh, to what we're practicing. But I don't want people to take that as, you know, to be a gritty, excellent person, you have to be a loner because it's exactly what you said, Jesus. It's, it's, it's the opposite. I mean, uh, being great at anything is always a team sport in some sense. Um, so how does this all, you know, square with each other? I think it means that for periods of the day, um, it may be that you need to be alone. So just so you can concentrate, not that you hate people, but just so you can really, uh, completely concentrate on your writing, on your, um, you know, practicing a speech, you know, whatever it is, practicing a basketball move. Um, and then of course, if for a lot of people, they have to integrate that into some team play, like your basketball player or your, you know, an executive and you're not, you know, you're an entrepreneur and you have to get your team on board. Um, but more, more than that, I think, you know, the idea to, to, you know, one of the things that I study less, but it's totally true. It's just not grit, but there are other things you need to be successful is like, um, I think most of the people that I've studied have been remarkable at developing authentic relationships with other people. Um, I'm not saying they're manipulative. They're, they are, they're genuinely interested in other people in being helpful um, in, and they're empathic. Um, so, you know, when I featured Mark Vetri um, as a chef in my book, because I love food, um, you know, I, I found him because I asked the food writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who's the grittiest chef in Philadelphia? They said, go talk to Mark. So turns out he's very gritty. He does all the things that I study. But um, I got to know him a little better since then. And I am equally struck by how this guy is so like profoundly embedded in a network of other chefs, of other entrepreneurs, of the guy around the corner that he, you know, smokes cigar with. Like it's it's those kinds of social connections. That's not grit, but maybe it's, you can call it social intelligence. Um, so it's not just grit that makes you successful. Love it. Love it. Uh, I want to go to a, a question that has come in from Daniel. Um, this is a little bit of a precursor, a uh, couple of comments about creativity and feelings, but ultimately what he wants to know, which I think is a great question, is your how does your anticipation or your expectations affect your the quality of your performance your emotions and and ultimately even mental health how, how do expectations play into this character to frame it in your world this 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 element of grit um, profoundly important question. Um, let's take two uh, diametrically opposed expectations. You could be an optimist or pessimist, right? Um, you know, optimist might you know be experiencing this pandemic and 
think like, well, it's terrible, but gosh, I learned all these things. Like I learned all these features on Zoom that I didn't know existed. And I, you know, learned how to cook better. I learned how to bake bread. Like, you know, I learned how to like, you know, figure out a schedule to my day because like I had to create one and, you know, the usual landmarks of leave for work, come back from work, we're gone. Wow, look at what I learned. And like, look at all the things that I have agency over that I could control. A pessimist might have uh, different expectancies, like, oh, you know, this is going to go on forever, like nobody knows, like, uh, you know, we're all going to fight with each other to, to you know, until to, to really nothing gets done. Like, um, uh, I think these two different um, expectant kind of, you know, different ways of thinking about um, both the past and the future um, are in some ways self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, because if you have that optimistic outlook, like always hunting for something that you can do something that, you know, is going well, then um, in fact, you will actually find things that you can do. And, you know, you will, by the way, be um, drawing other people to you because turns out people don't really like to hang out with like sad, pessimistic people. Um, but the pessimists are also going to prove themselves right, right? Like, you know, they'll, they'll like, you know, I, I bet this is going to go terribly. I bet there's nothing I can do. See, see, it did go terribly. So I, I think there's so much power in this. And, you know, some of the people um, who study therapy, um, which I'm a big fan of, um, psychotherapy, uh, one of the great inventions um, uh, in the last, you know, 100 years, uh, is like so much of it is trying to help people um, create um, positive and accurate expectancies um, and to get out of, you know, distorted and maladaptive pessimistic expectancies because you do have this power to fulfill those prophecies in a way. Mm. I think so much of this probably has a foundation in Carol Dweck's work um, with mindset. I'm wondering if you could put grit and mindset together and talk about those two things. I think that, that the mind, mindset, my belief is, is, you know, I, I, I like to think of that as the base of any pyramid that you get a foundation of. I'm curious, um, is mindset a piece of grit? How do you, how do you, what's the relation between those two things? I know that some people might be sick of growth mindset, but I love it. And I think it is so important. Um, what is a growth mindset? Carol Dweck at Stanford University, um, probably more than anyone, my role model, my hero, um, she defines a growth mindset as a, a belief, a conviction that your abilities can change as opposed to a fixed mindset, which is the conviction that you really can't change anything about yourself in any fundamental way. Um, and the relationship between grit and growth mindset, I first discovered in a research study that Carol and I were both um, uh, you know, helping to lead. And we were looking at teenagers and we just measured grit using my grit questionnaire. It's called the grit scale. We measured growth mindset using her measure and there was a correlation. Since then, I've done longitudinal research where I come back again and again and again to the same um, population and I measure grit and growth mindset. And here's what I find. There's a virtuous cycle where the grittier you are at time one, the more likely you are to develop a growth mindset at time two. The more you develop a growth mindset at time two, the more likely you're to grow in grit at time three and so on. And so I feel like when you believe that you can change, when you kind of have that as a fundamental core belief, that leads you to try things, to work hard, to, to be a little more resilient versus a little more fragile, throw yourselves into things. That affirms 
that belief that fundamentally human nature is malleable. Um, and that would be the uh, virtuous path that I think, um, you know, no matter how old you are, it's never too late to get on. Um, and, um, and it's much better, I think, than the opposite path, which is, you know, fixed mindset, don't try, never go out of your house, don't get off the couch. Um, uh, and then you get into that, you know, more pessimistic spiral. Amazing. Amazing. It's easy to see why grit is, uh, spent, I don't know how many hundreds of weeks on the New York times list, because it's so, it's so infectious. The, the concept, it, it has this element of psychology and element of physicality and effort. It's, you know, both alone and team it's, it's so dynamic. Did you stumble on that afterwards? Did you, were you obsessed with grit before you uncovered all its components or was it the other way around? Mm. Well, I started studying grit in my very first year of graduate school, but I didn't always call it that. Um, my professor, Marty Seligman, um, at one point early in our in our research on grit, but um, as I said, it was in my first year. Um, it was after I had already collected some data. You know, he really wanted me to to name it, and I was like, "Well, what do I call this combination of of passion and perseverance?" And um, I don't know, Marty. Maybe it doesn't matter. Why don't we just think about the name later? But he was pretty stubborn. He was like, "No, I'm not going to talk to you until you have a name for it." So, you know, I, I took out a, a legal pad and I just started writing names like stamina and you know, like anyway, I I got to grit and and. And, um, that stuck. So I'd say I was studying grit from uh, from the very beginning of my career as a psychological scientist. Um, the name came pretty early on. I think, though, I've continued to um, to understand it better um, and see how it's connected in ways to things like growth mindset, to having a higher level purpose, um, like a sense of meaning in life, um, connecting it to the science of flow, um, connecting it to the science of deliberate practice. Um, so I'm definitely learning. And I, I know it's not the only thing you need to be successful, but um, but I do stand by my you know first convictions that um, it is it is a common denominator. I mean, people who are really great, you know, let's let's not make the mistake to assume that it was all talent. Um, I really don't think it is. I think there's almost always a huge amount of passion and perseverance, um, a huge amount of consistency, right? Um, all the things that we talked about in this um, conversation, um, the key would be like, can you do these things? Can you bring them out in yourself in a consistent way over a long period of time? Um, that's what will lead you to excellence. That perseverance part, I was going to circle back because we talked a lot about passion and application of effort, but doing so over a long period of time. And I think you say that's why choosing something that you like in order to be world-class, that is important because that is actually one of the, the key uh, determining factors is, would you add anything else on, on perseverance? I think that's part of uh, the part yeah. that is hard and people overlook. And I don't want to do that in this conversation. It's really important. I met a guy named George recently. He um, wants to understand his own tiger parents. <laughs> um, and and I, I want to bring that up because, you know, um, there is something to avoid, I think. If you want to be gritty and great, um, don't don't think that that comes through like extrinsic motivation. Um, and, and don't parents think that you can force your kids to be gritty and passionate about something that you chose for them. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't work that way. You can't be like, you're going to be pre-med and, um, and play the violin and, and you're going to be great at it. Um, because, 
it's exactly what you say. Well, it's, it takes so much consistency and takes so long that people just can't sustain that amount of consistent effort in a, in a wholehearted way. And by the way, that really does lead to unhappiness. And there's lots of research on when people pursue goals that they feel have been kind of um, externally imposed on them as opposed to voluntarily chosen. Yeah, they can do it. They can do it for an hour. They can do it for a week. Um, some people can even do it for longer, but it makes them very, very unhappy. So I think the route that people need to try to follow is to, you know, sample and figure out things. I know it's messy. I know it takes longer than you would like. Um, but the fruit of that will be that you can develop an interest and a passion that is yours um, and not imposed on you by anybody else. That is going to be the clip out that we are going to share far and wide from this. That is so important. And I got two questions. I know we're coming up on time and, and I want to be respectful of what we've carved out for this today. Two things. One, not just 10,000 hours and whether you attribute that Anders slash Gladwell, the 10,000 hours of effort, this idea that you have championed of deliberate practice and it being actually the the hardest and the worst and the most painful kind of practice. Can you relate that back to this choosing of what it is that you want to create for yourself? Can you, this idea a yeah. of deliberate practice, not just 10,000 hours, like, digging a ditch, but 10,000 hours of doing the hard stuff, this deliberate practice, not just going through the motions. How does that relate to this, this choice that we are ultimately are making for ourselves? You know, there seems to be a contradiction, right? Like, wait, are you saying that you're going to love it? Or are you saying that you're going to hate it? Right? Like, are you <laughs> saying it's going to be, yeah, like, is it voluntary? You're going to have to force yourself to do hard things. So um, I remember interviewing Olympic gold medalist swimmer, Rowdy Gaines for my book. And I asked him this question because man, when he described what it's like to train for, you know, the freestyle, you know, uh, in the Olympics and, you know, getting up at God knows when four in the morning, you know, putting on a speedo, jumping in a cold pool and like really like pushing yourself to you want to vomit or when you do vomit like every day, you know, after like that sounds terrible. Right. Um, but he kept using these words like I love this sport. I, you know, I always loved it. I, I love what I do. So there is something of a kind of apparent tension there. Here's how I think it resolves. Um, you know, there are no great people who don't have some component of what they do that they probably do but it's not the funnest thing in the moment. It's not the easiest thing, but because they overall love everything. I mean, frankly, I've got 17 and 18 year old daughters. I mean, do I love them? I, I love nothing more in this world than I love my, my kids. Is it easy? Hell no. Right. I mean, there's so many things I do where I'm like, Oh my God, I want to claw up my eyeballs. Like you're, you know, <laughs> I'm crying, they're crying. Like, so, so part of this paradox is resolved when you understand when you love the totality of what you do. And this is what Rowdy explained to me, you know, when you love the totality of it, it does mean that there are parts that are really hard that make you cry, um, uh, that, that you do anyway, because you love the totality. So that's one resolution. And here's the Yoda, like, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi stage. I have not yet gotten to like the true Jedi stage. There are some truly great people that I've studied that they say that when you reach a certain state of enlightenment, that even the hardest things become flow. Um, and, and, and those people, 
like Josh Waitskin, world-class chess player, world-class, you know, martial artist. He, he says that um, once you reach a certain stage of understanding um, that it, it, the, the phenomenology, as you said, like actually shifts a bit um, and what was effortful doesn't feel as effortful. I have not yet achieved the state of enlightenment, <laughs> but, um, but, but I understand the Rowdy Gaines point. And, and I do think that, um, you know, when you choose this path, um, you're not choosing it because it's easy. And you're not choosing it because it's comfortable. Um, and, um, and nevertheless, you're choosing it. Amazing. Amazing. Speed round, three questions, then we're going to let you go. Giant wants to know, explain with help of an example, the best way to cultivate good habits from scratch. Ah, um, the best thing you can do to cultivate a habit is identify the action that you want to be able to do on autopilot. That's the habit. Um, identify a cue, like a physical thing that's going to cue you, right? Four o'clock in the afternoon or every time I see this big red poster on my wall, et cetera. So that's the cue. And then the last thing is to make a habit. You have to make it immediately rewarding. So people don't develop habits when there's a cue and they do the thing over and over again, but there's no reward. So you have to, eat, for example, you self-talk, like praise yourself every time you do that thing or get someone else to praise you or, or do something else that's immediately rewarding. That's how you develop a habit. Amazing. We're going to put application of your concepts to work here in this question. Michael Harris wants to know, I'm a, I'm a photographer, but I went to grad school for social work. I'm really interested in people. A lot of things you're talking about. I have multiple goals. Is this okay? I think it's totally okay. You might want to consider this, right? If you want to, when you want to, you might want to like put those goals out on a piece of paper and see whether there's some way to tie them together or, or, or more than one of them anyway together. Maybe you can't tie all of them in one bundle. Is that like grit and chefs? Is that? Is um, that... Yeah. Or for me, you know, something I didn't mention to you, Chase, was like, I really love writing. I like love words. And um, I, I think for me, like I love writing, I love science and I do a lot of writing about science. So, you know, there, there are other ways. That's why I said, like, you might not be able to tie everything in a nice little bow, um, but see if you can get more of your loves to go together, because that is, as Will Smith would say, you know, more aerodynamic. Last question uh, from the audiences from Chris Ainsley. Practical strategies for moving from fixed to growth mindset. Mm, okay, so I'm going to try to do what Carol does in her own interventions, um, uh, which is this. I'm going to just tell you the brain is plastic. Carol Dweck is right. The brain is never stopped uh, in its growth and development. It used to be 50 years ago, people thought, oh, after childhood, the brain is fixed. But it turns out there's never a day in your life where your brain isn't changing and growing. So maybe knowing that scientific fact will help you understand that when you try something hard and you make a mistake and it feels bad, um, your brain is growing. Mm. Thanks for that little lightning round there. Um, if you have not read Grit and you're listening or watching right now, this is an absolute must, one of the most impactful <laughs> books of my professional development. And uh, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. I also need to direct people to No Stupid Questions, the podcast that you do with uh, Stephen Dubner, which is just, just a delight. Congratulations. Just came out, uh, what, like a week ago? I think like so. That. I yeah. think it's just out. Thank um, you. Yeah. Congratulations. Anywhere you'd like to steer the people watching and listening, this is going to be okay. around for a long time. This is a classic. So <laughs> yeah, I have a huge audience, right? So remember my top level goal. If you are a parent or um, somebody who works with kids, then go to characterlab.org where you can get actionable advice on how kids thrive from, among others, me. 
amazing. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It was so much fun. So much knowledge just just like (laughs) emanating. And um, I'm I'm seeing notes. I've got a, a, a three pages of notes here in my notebook. I got just people calling in from all the world saying thank you for sharing with us. It's been a treat to have you on the show. Uh, I'm I'm a huge fan and I hope to have you back uh, at some point in the future because I know you'll keep putting out great stuff. So thank you so much. I had a ball. Thank you. That was great. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, It would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here, whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shout outs in my feed too. Um, Not only do these shout outs, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, But again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.